coming up next on the Wetfly Swing podcast. Sadly enough, though, this book is dedicated to Brian Mancini, who is the soldier that I roomed with who eventually killed himself. And, and Brian lost his life as a result, direct result of his service and the post-traumatic uh, post-traumatic stress disorder that, that he suffered from. So this book is dedicated to Brian and the men and women like him who won't come home. That was Bo Beasley with Powerful Moment and Tribute to a Good Friend. Today's episode is dedicated to Brian Mancini and all the people who have given their lives for their country. This is The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. My call today is to give a shout out and check in with Project Healing Waters and any of the local smaller groups around the country that are supporting veterans. Take a moment and let them know how much you appreciate what they have going. Today's episode is sponsored by Dalton at uh, Country Financial who thrives on helping families and community members through the power of education and proper insurance coverage. The unexpected will happen, so it's always best to make sure your assets and life are protected. You can check out Dalton right now at wetflyswing.com country and make sure you are protected today. Trestle designs, engineers, and manufactures industry-leading outdoor products and premium apparel. From their patented game-changing telescopic fly rod carrier and their specialized waterproof cases and fly boxes to their magnetic nipper system that are revolutionizing how people snip their line. Please head over to wetflyswing.com slash trestle to get started today. That's wetflyswing.com slash trestle, T-R-X-S-T-L-E to support this podcast and an amazing product and brand today. Bo Beasley is here to take us into the mid-Atlantic region and some of the good stuff he has going on in fishing and some of the events he has going out there uh, and also in Texas. We find out about a new Project Healing Waters book that he is uh, publishing very soon and it includes 40 powerful stories from veterans around the country. We find out uh, this is uh, kind of the second half of the show. The first half is Bo digging into some of his events and some of that good stuff he has going and then we get in to the project healing waters i wasn't really um, really aware of all the stuff he had going so this is um, really powerful and after hearing it it's really what gave me the idea to use this as our 400th episode to really support um, the veterans all the people around the country we've had some of them on the podcast here over the years um, but this is just a chance to give a spotlight out to all those people um, all those great people. You might be one of them listening now, and uh, we could say thank you. Uh, thank you right now for your service. I'm not going to stretch this one out. Let's get into it with Bo. This is a good one. This is a really good one. So uh, here he is, Bo Beasley from BoBeasley.com. How's it going, Bo? I'm doing well, Dave. Thanks for the invitation to be on your show. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for thanks for coming along here. I was, I was tracking down some past emails, and I ran into another one that I think somebody had tried to connect 
talked uh, me to you a while back uh, about one of your events. I think it was the Texas event. So we're going to talk about some of the big events you have going, which are some of the, I think some of the biggest ones in the country. And, uh, and then we're going to talk about uh, the mid-Atlantic area just to give people a flavor if, they, if they're not familiar with that on the fly fishing end. But um, before we get into all that, take us back really quickly to how you first got into fly fishing. Uh, well, oddly enough, uh, I'm a retired Fairfax County firefighter and paramedic. And when I was a young paramedic, I ran a famous fly angler who got stung by a bee. His name was Bob Guess. And he was the namesake of Mr. Bob's Lucky Day Lures, which was probably the best known popping bug maker at that time in the South. And um, on my way to the hospital, I was just making small talk with him. And I asked him if he, he fished and he said, yes. Uh, I, I wasn't fishing today. Today, I was just walking around Burke Lake, but I do fish. I fly fish. And I said, wow, I've, I've always wanted to learn how to fly fish. And he said, well, son, if you want to learn, I'll be glad to teach you. <laughs> and he gave me his phone number and encouraged me to call him. And three days later, I gave him a call and he took me out to Burke Lake and we went out on John boat and I caught my first bluegill on a fly rod. And that was it. Nice. I was, uh, I was hooked. I was yep. Ready to throw all my spinning gear away. Not that anybody has to do that, but I yep. was just overwhelmed with how much more connected you were to the fish and um, ended up eventually becoming very good friends with him. He bought me my first fly rod and uh, taught me how to cast and um, took me to my first fly fishing show. He asked me to drive him up to Chuck Ferimsky's excellent show, uh, which at the time was Somerset, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So we went up to Somerset and it wasn't until I got up there and saw the reaction from all the other people at the show about who he was. I had no idea who the guy was, right? I, I joked that it's like being out on the golf course and somebody seeing you golf and come over and say, Hey, you need some help with your swing. And they help you and you get to where you can drive the ball. And, and then you ask the guy what his name is. And he said, oh, you know, no big deal. I, my name's Arnold. And then you don't find out till a year later, you've been playing golf with Arnold Palmer. You never knew. Right. So right. I never knew. I didn't know for over a year who the guy was. I mean, I knew he, he made popping bugs, but I had no idea the stature that mm -hmm. he had. And I eventually went to work for him as a manufacturer's rep. That's how I got into the industry and drove around all over the mid-Atlantic selling his popping bugs. And then I picked up other manufacturers as uh, reps often do. And it was a perfect job because I worked full time for Fairfax County Fire and Rescue. And on my days off, I would uh, visit fly shops. And that's how I got involved in the fly fishing and just totally became just completely overwhelmed with it. And there's still, you know, it's an interesting sport. The more you learn, the more you realize how little you know yeah. and how much more there is out there. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I'm <laughs> constantly <laughs> surprised by people that think I'm some kind of expert. And that's not true. I mean, I've written for a whole lot of fly fishing magazines and have written for some of the best known magazines in the country and have written a couple of guidebooks. But I joke that I could fill up six or seven books about what I don't know yeah. compared to what I do know. And I just like being around other people who, who share the same passion and, uh -huh. uh, you know, that's, that's how I got into the sport. And then it, it kind of helped me because as a paramedic and a firefighter, you see a lot of, a lot of ugly stuff, a lot of things that you wish you hadn't seen, mm. Yeah. And um, the fly fishing just allowed me to get on the stream and connect with the water and just be outside and enjoy the environment. And, um, and that's, that's what I've been doing 
and yep. for years now, and and I love it. And then the more I do it, the more I want to do it. Right. Yeah. It sounds amazing. And for Imsky, we, we had Chuck on and we talked about some of the, the history of those shows, how they started, you know, way back in the day. And, uh, and it's interesting because there are a few other shows and you have a couple of these events out there. When you look at, you know, you think of what Chuck has going, right? He's got these events around the country. For somebody who hasn't been to say either Virginia, one of your events or the Texas one, how are those, how are your events different than say Chuck's? Um, First of all, I, I have to point out that Chuck and his son, Ben, do an excellent job, I think, of, of promoting the sport overall. My events are a little different in that the demographics are a little younger. And uh, we also were heavy, heavy, heavy into instruction. Um, so our, our demographics tend to, to steer a little younger. The Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival is um, uh, just outside of Richmond, Virginia. It's about 90 minutes from Washington, D.C. And uh, there we have about eight wineries. So the public comes in, pays their admission fee, and learns all they want to learn about fly fishing. And then they can go around and sample wine and uh Two years ago, we added a distillery, and prior to that, we uh, we were sponsored by Steambell Brewery, which is uh, a craft brewery out of Richmond, Virginia. So it's just, you know, the concept, a, a lot of people become very, very intimidated by fly fishing. I think the industry's done a better job of trying to reach out to everybody uh, in the outdoor community, but we, we still have the reputation of a sport that's only, you know, it's very exclusive and only available to the top, you know, 1% of yeah. the population. And, you know, the only people that fly fish are, are college professors. And then they only fly fish for, you know, brook trout. Right. Um, with dry flies. And, <laughs> right. With dry flies only. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that couldn't be further from the truth. And our event allows you, whether it's the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival in Doswell, Virginia, or the Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival, which is outside of Mesquite, which for those that don't know their, the geography for, for Texas, which is an enormous state, um, Mesquite borders Dallas. So it's kind of in the north central part of the state. And the idea is you, you just come and experience fly fishing at a pace that you like. And if you want to take a free walk-up casting class with a bunch of other people that don't know anything anymore about fly fishing than you do, then you can do that. If you want to take a class with a limited amount of students and, and pay a fee and have something that's, that's more highly structured, mm -hmm. then you can do that. If you want to take an intermediate to advanced class, then you can do that. So we try, you know, we can't be everything to everybody. But I tell people all the time, wherever you're at, if you're a beginner or you're an intermediate or you're an advanced, we have an instructor at our event who can take you to the next level, wherever mm -hmm. that level is that you currently are. Um, I'm pretty, um, I'm known for two things. One is um, I work pretty hard and, and I'll change the direction of my event or a class on a dime, 180 degrees if you can show me where I'm wrong, but the other thing that I'm, that I'm, or, or a way we can do it better. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing I'm passionate about, I learned from the most important fly angler, I think in the world 
and who's probably the the, the biggest role model for the entire industry, and, and that's Lefty Cray. Yeah. And Lefty told me when I started out decades ago, he said, Bo, let me give you some advice about your event. And I said, okay. He said, there are only two kinds of people in fly fishing, Bo, and only two. The kind of people that show their knowledge to everybody and the kind of people that share their knowledge with everybody. And you want the latter and you want yep. the former like the plague. So mm. as a result, we are highly selective. I mean, highly selective about how we who, who we use as our instructors. And uh, obviously, there, there's a list waiting for people that want to get a chance to present or instruct. And some people are surprised. They come to my event and they go, oh, I've never heard of this person or I've never heard of that person mm-hmm. or I've never seen this lady before. Well, I'm trying to uh, bring on the next generation of instructors. And I think sometimes in the fly fishing community, we don't like change. I used to, I like to joke that the fly fishing community is right on, we're on the cutting edge of what happened five years ago. So once it's a guaranteed success, we're all in. But if it involves anything new or different, nah. Yeah. We'll wait and see. And right. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a wait and see kind of guy. Um, yep. I'm, Love that. I'm, I'm, I'm very much into trying something new. Yeah. And there's some inherent dangers with that. Uh, you know, some people, they don't like new or they want to use, you know, the same old techniques. And I've, I've had instructors that have been at my events over the years and most of them work out. Some of them don't. And, the people that don't work out at my events, whether they be a super famous person or somebody that maybe isn't quite as well known, if they forget that they're there to help the public, they don't stay at my event for long. Because mm-hmm. we yeah. don't need anybody else. I, I joke, you know, the inside joke in the fly fishing community is I work with people all the time who think they're one step below Jesus because hmm. they can cast a fly rod. And it's not a big step. Not a big step between them and Jesus because they can cast a fly rod. And I think, you know, we tend to, to forget, you know, the average person just wants to learn. I bet I've made the statement a hundred times. I'm making a hundred more that 50%, at least 50% of the people that come to my events wouldn't know lefty cray from righty cray. No, they don't know anything. They just want to learn. And if we provide them with an environment where they can learn at their own pace and realize, well, wait a minute, this isn't like curing cancer. I can cast. Uh, You know, there are only two things that keep people out of fly fishing. And only two, this is my opinion. There are only two things, Dave, that keep people out of fly fishing. Money and learning how to cast. But if you teach them how to cast, they'll come up with the money. Yeah. If you teach people how to cast, uh, efficiently and effectively, yep. you know, and it used to be back in the day that, that, yeah, it cost $800 to get started, but now there's so many excellent beginner outfits that you can get a really good, I mean, a really good rod and reel and a decent fly line combined for less than $300. Oh, yeah. And it will do more than you can do. I tell people every day, because this is the most common question. They get, well, what fly rod should I get? This, that, and the other. And I tell people the same thing every time. Fly rods are identical 
to automobiles. They're identical. You can either get a Volkswagen or a Maserati. Both of them are going to take you there. The question is, how do you want to go? Then probably the biggest misconception in fly fishing is that if you have a $300 fly rod and then you buy a $600 fly rod, you think you're going to be twice as good at casting. and, And that's not true. Yeah. How do you get when the show you, you, so I understand sharing the knowledge, right? So that's definitely what you want. What would be like showing the knowledge? What what would be an example of that? How does somebody? Well, somebody who, uh, for example, thinks that you have to have an $800 fly rod to be a real angler. Hmm. If you don't have an $800 pair of waders, you're not really a fly fisherman. If you use streamers, as oh, opposed right. to dry flies, you're not really a fly. If gotcha. You, gotcha. If you grate unwashed, go after smallmouth bass, or God forbid, you fish for carp, right? Instead of dry fishing for yep. uh, rainbows on you know the Madison. Yeah, well, you're not a real flying. If you, gotcha. And I and there are plenty of people. Here's what I think is crazy, and I've seen this multiple times. Maybe you have too. People who know nothing about fly fishing, and I mean, they barely know which end of the rod to hold. And yet they go out, they fly out to Montana and they stay at a lodge or they go out with a guide and spend an ungodly amount of money and can't cast 20 feet. Yeah. And every guide I have ever known, every guide, every guide worth 10 cents, male or female, will tell you most of their clients can't cast. And if they spent $100 on a really good casting lesson or got some really good casting instruction, their ability to put the fly where it needed to be would go up dramatically and then they would stay in the sport. I'm convinced people come in and come out of the sport because they don't know how to effectively cast. That's number one. But closely behind that, and maybe more important, they don't have anybody to go with. All right. And this is a sport that you need to be discipled in. This is a sport that you need somebody to take you under your under their wing and say, well, you know, Bo, you need to consider this kind of fly for here. Let me give you an example. When I first started out fly fishing, all I knew were popping bugs. That's all I knew because that, that's hmm. what I was exposed to, right? I didn't know anything else mm-hmm. but popping bugs. So in April, I'm in the Rappahannock River in Virginia fishing for shad with what? Popping bugs because that's all I knew. Now, you can imagine I caught a grand total of nothing hmm. with a popping bug for shad, right? Because they're popping bugs are on the surface and shattered towards the bottom. And then somebody came along and said, Hey man, um, you know, you're supposed to be using subsurface flies here. Let me give you a handful of, you know, shad flies. And that changed my world. So Mm -hmm. it just, you know, I like being around other people that want to share what they know and are, secure enough in who they are that they don't have to talk down to you. The very first fly shop I went into was before I was a fly angler. The shop did not have a name that indicated it was a fly shop. 
And I made the unpardonable sin of coming in with a spinning reel and asking for help. And the guys in that fly shop treated me like I was a child molester. Oh, wow. Because I came in and asked for help with a spinning reel. Jeez. Because I didn't know. I mean, I, I didn't know the shop sure. wasn't up, up, right? And yep. I mean, they practically beat me. I mean, I've never been so poorly treated and talked down to. I don't know that I've ever had an experience. And it left an indelible mark on me. Yep. I walked out of that fly shop and I thought, if this is what fly fishing is, I don't want to have anything to do with these people. Wow. And I'll bet you, I'll bet you that fly shop is not around today. Uh, no, they're no longer in business. Yeah. So the, the irony here is 30 years later, 30 years later, they're out of business. And I have written two books about fly fishing and run two of the largest fly fishing events in the nation. Yeah. I mean, go figure. Right. How did that start with, uh, you got Virginia and Texas, which one of those started first in, in that process? So Virginia started first. Um, and now we're going into our 22nd season. Wow. So 22nd season in Virginia. When? Yes. Take us back to, I mean, was that close? I can't remember when Chuck was on, when he said he started their events. Was that pretty close? No, no. Chuck uh, Chuck was certainly on uh, before then. I think his events now are, I want to say 27 years in Edison. Yeah, but I'm pretty not, close. But I'm, but I'm not, you know, but I'm not sure. Right. What gave you, you know, with the Virginia event? I mean, you're, you know, I, I had a guy approach me that was a, a guide and he came to me and he said, you know, Bo, there are all these really good fly fishing shows, but we don't have any in Virginia. Yeah. You know, we, meaning he and I should start one in Virginia. And I'm like, I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. I mean, your car keys knew more about running a fly fishing event than I did. I'd just been to some of Chuck's, which were well done and yep. saw how those were done. And um, I thought, well, I'll give it a try. And I called a store and I pitched them on my idea of having a fly fishing event in Virginia. And they did me a huge, huge favor. They told me it would never work <laughs> and I should quit. Wow because it would never work. Huh. And that was the wrong thing to say to me. Yeah. That it wasn't going to work. I mean, I, I had many faults, but one of the greatest faults I have is pride. Mm. Uh, I think that's the number one sin in the fly fishing community. The greatest challenge we have in the fly fishing community is pride. We don't want, you know, to take the time to show other people what they need to do to, to join into the sport. Right. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, <clears throat> we did the event and it grew over time. Um, I got invited to help uh, promote the fly fishing festival that at the time was in Waynesboro, Virginia, and it grew and grew and grew and grew. And then it grew so large, it, it couldn't stay there anymore. And I ended up, um, moving it to to uh, just outside Richmond, Virginia, to the State Farm Bureau building. And now it's completely inside. And it went from April on the side of a river to January inside of a building. And, you know, the first two or three years, people were really upset that it went from being outside by the side of a river to being inside. And that's fine unless it rains. Right. 
And one year, uh, I remember probably one of the longest days of my life because you, people don't understand how long you work on these festivals. I, I work on these festivals nearly 10 months out of the year. Oh, wow. And people, they go, yeah, I just don't believe that. That's because you've never done it. And you don't know what it takes because you have to sign for the building a year in advance. Yep. And I got news for you. They're not going to let you reserve that building on a handshake and 30 <laughs> bucks. Nope. Right. And they get their money no matter what happens. So anyhow, um, one year when it was outside, we literally had a hurricane, literally. And every tent, with the exception of one, was flattened by the Jeez. wind. Wow. And we had to abandon everything. But the next day was sunny. The tents went back up. We had a good turnout. And we've been doing it ever since. So like I said, this year is the 22nd year. Uh, about eight years ago, I was approached by Rick Pope, oh, yeah. who at the time was, uh, was the founder of Temple Fork Outfitters. He'd been to my event multiple times in Virginia. He pulled me off to the side and said, Bo, I've never seen anything like this anywhere. I've never seen this many women. I've never seen this many children ever. And it's just got a totally different buzz. You need to consider doing a different one. They're doing one in a different location. And at the time, I was working full time for Fairfax County Fire Department, which was 56 hours a week. I was writing for three different magazines pretty regularly, and I had two children under 10. Hmm. So uh, I had all I could do. But eventually, I retired from the fire department and um, launched the Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival. And it's the same kind of concept where it's 100% fly fishing, but in Texas, the demographics are a little different. Mm -hmm. So we invite in breweries. Mm. And, you know, what, 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 what's interesting is I don't think people, like in Virginia, it's called the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival, right? Yeah. But we routinely, like commonplace, have people drive from as far north as Syracuse, New York, to attend our, I don't mean vendors, I mean attendees. And then from the South, as far as Atlanta, Georgia. So, I mean, it's called the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival. We draw people from all over the Mid-Atlantic. And the same thing in Texas. It's called the Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival. But we've had people come. And again, these aren't vendors. These are attendees. Yeah. I've had attendees come from as far away as Kentucky. Oh, wow. To Texas. Uh, and California, where yep. it, it's it's unusual and they want to come and have a handcrafted beer. And, and now, obviously, that's not normative, right? Or I shouldn't yeah. say that's not common. It is normative. I mean, every year we get people from further and further and further away. We get people from Florida, Louisiana, Arkansas, mm -hmm. you know, uh, lots of people from Oklahoma uh, right. because it's, it's a bordering state. But yeah. we get people from Colorado. We get people from Missouri. So every year people come from further and further away. And, and the objective is just to share our passion of fly fishing and let people learn on a level they feel comfortable with, because you have to understand, I bet again, going back to 50%, I bet 50% of the people, maybe not that high, that come to my festival, they won't go into a fly shop because mm. they don't know anything about it. Right. They don't even know where to ask. They don't even know what kind of question to ask. Right. 
How do you find those people? How do you, because it seems like you're in, that's like the holy grail, finding new people, right, that are new to fly fishing. How do you guys, how do you do that? Uh, a couple of different ways. First of all, uh, it's very slow, but just every single person you come in contact with, with the festival, you make them feel welcome. And you let them know, look, have you got any questions? I have people send me questions all the time. They email me questions or call me on the phone and ask me, hey, what about this? What about that? So we encourage all of our instructors and all of our vendors to invite whoever they think might want to come. So obviously we do advertising in print magazines. Obviously, you know, I mean, we do that like other people do. Um, And we do a lot on social media. And people see a post about the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival, and they go, you know what? Um, I'm totally making this up. Yeah. Maybe I, now I'm not making this up. I bet I've had a hundred, maybe more men come to me and say, Bo, the fact that this is a fly fishing and wine festival makes it so easy for me to bring my wife. Yeah. Funny. Right. Right. And we never charge for children. If you're 16 or under, you get in for free. Oh, amazing. So if you got five kids, do yeah. we don't care. bring them as long That's as, you know, as long as you're watching them and you know, they're not trying to swim in the casting pond. Yep. Bring all the kids you want. You know, we're, we're very family friendly. We, we want children to be there. We, we need to pass on our sport to the next generation and, and make them feel welcome and let people know they can ask whatever kind of question they want. The, the other thing to keep in mind is everybody that comes into fly fishing comes into it from a perspective from wherever they are, and they look at it through that lens. Let me give you an example. I went into a fly shop one time, and it was uh, the, the shop is not around anymore, but it was out near the Shenandoah National Park. And... Uh, I went in and, and I've probably been fly fishing maybe a year, maybe, maybe year and a half max. And I knew that a lot of the flies were named after people or named after places. And I saw a bin and I'm looking at these flies and there's, there's a gazillion different patterns, right? I mean, <laughs> the variations of flies in our industry are almost like sand on the seashore. Oh, yeah. So I'm looking at this fly box and the guy says, can I help you? And I look down and I'm under pressure. I'm like, dude, I got to make a decision and I need to sound like I'm not an idiot and that I know at least something. So I look down and I see a fly bin and it says LT Cahill. Well, I was a lieutenant in the fire department. (laughs) Right. So the abbreviation for lieutenant is LT. Yep. So I looked at that and saw LT Cahill and immediately surmised, obviously, this was a fly invented by a cavalry officer <laughs> named Cahill. And so I said to the fly shop guy, you know what? I think I'll take a couple of these Lieutenant Cahill flies. I <laughs> thought the guy was going to burst a vein, not laughing, right? I mean, he stifled it. He's lucky he yeah. didn't give himself an aneurysm, right? Yeah. And then he said, well, sir, actually, that's that's not a Lieutenant Cahill fly. That LT stands for light. That's why the one next to it, DK, stands for dark. So it's light Cahill and dark Cahill. Now, there's an example of a guy who shared his knowledge without making me feel 
like yeah. I was an idiot. Right. right. And it had a profound, that interaction had just as important and just as strong as impact on me as the fly shop that talked down to me like I was a five-year-old because I asked for help. Yeah. Gotcha. So, and I tell people when I'm giving talks, you know, that there are only two kinds of flies, flies that float and them that don't. Yep. That's it. They either float or they don't, right? And then there are endless variations of that. And yeah. what we have to understand when we're when we're talking to the public or dealing with the public is they don't know. And we need to help them understand that this is a sport that they can get involved with, that they can enjoy and find peace and solitude in. And remember that there was a time when we didn't know anything either. So today's episode is sponsored by Tokens Fly Shop. Tokens Fly Shop provides superior quality products at a great price. They have also a great YouTube channel that you can check out right now with uh, new flight tying tutorials each week. Tokens also has you covered if you're looking for unique in-house products, and they also support uh, many, many of the great brands out there that you know and trust. It's been fun connecting with Justin and the family uh, over the years now, and it's it's been really cool, a great local fly shop. Togans is also offering their flight tying box where they send out materials at a regular cadence where you don't even have to think of it. You just open the mailbox and there's your Togans pack. And I recently made an order through Togans and the experience is always perfect. They've got you covered if you ever have questions or need any help, whether that's a YouTube tutorial or connecting with them uh, personally. Since 2005, Togans has been over delivering on customer service. And it's time for you to check out uh, Togans Buzz for yourself. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash Togans right now to check out their diverse selection of products today. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to Togans online. That's Togans, T-O-G-E-N-S. Okay, back to the show. You noted Rick Pope a while back. We had him on in episode uh, 158 quite a while ago, a few years ago, and he talked about some of the... Uh, Dug into the history there. Uh, it, it's interesting. So on your shows, so who would be, you know, if you think about, say, Texas or Virginia, some of the, the names of people that are kind of your, uh, I think Chuck calls them his um, uh, celebrities, right? But who are who are those people? Do you have similar folks that are kind of uh, leading? Yeah, we, we try to hire different people. We tend to not say celebrity because to me, that kind of separates you from the average guy. Yeah. Uh, let me give you an example of somebody that I think would be a classic role model in my opinion, uh, probably one of the best known fly anglers in the country, if not the world is Tom Rosenbauer. Yeah. And Tom will be in Virginia and he'll be at Texas. Tom Rosenbauer would no more talk down to someone who asked him a simple question than he would, you know, try to, uh, you know, run over, uh, run over a kid on a tricycle. Right. It's just not in his nature to talk down to people. And instead he tries to bring them up to wherever they need to be. And I've seen him do that in a number of occasions. One time it, it, he shocked me and he kind of put me on the spot and made me feel good at the same time. I was um, at an open house for Mossy Creek fly fishing, which is in Harrisonburg, Virginia. It's owned by Colby and Brian Tro, mm -hmm. And that's probably one of the best known fly shops on the East coast, not just yeah. in Virginia, but the East coast. And these guys 
are constantly knocking themselves out, reaching out to other people. And they, they had an open house. This was several years ago, probably 10 years ago. And I'm sitting in the audience and Tom Rosenbauer is a guest speaker and he's lecturing on fly patterns. He's talking about this. He's talking about that. He's talking about the other thing. And then he looks out into the crowd and I'm sitting there and he said, and Bo, what do you think about that? What would you use in this particular case? Hmm. And it was like EF Hutton. Everybody in the room turned and looked at me (laughs) and I gave some kind of answer, but that's an example of someone who doesn't feel like they need to put themselves on a pedestal to feel confident about themselves. Let me give you another really good example of somebody who is like that uh, in Texas in particular is uh, Pat Dorsey. Oh yeah. Phenomenal author. And I have found the people that are most secure um, are usually the most talented because they don't have anything to prove to anybody. Um, I remember a, a classic example. I was, um, this was before I really knew anything at all about fly fishing, not, almost nothing. And I was at an event um, and I was casting and it looked not all that good because I wasn't a very good caster. And this guy, I noticed out of the corner of my eye, this guy was kind of watching me and I started to feel a little self-conscious. And eventually he, he walks over to me and he goes, Hey, would you, would you like a couple of tips on how you can prove your casting? And I said, well, well, sure. He said, well, you know, if you don't break your wrist and if you do this and you stop the rod here and you follow through, blah, blah, blah. Sure enough, the guy had me casting 30 feet further than I was, Mm -hmm. and it was actually accurate. (laughs) And then I said, well, gee, thanks. I I really, I really appreciate that. And he said, no problem. And, And I said, what's your name? And he said, Tim. And I said, well, thank you so much, Tim. And shook his hand and walked off. Had no idea. I just gotten a casting lesson from Tim Ray Jeff. Oh, nice. Right. One of the finest casters in the world. So those are the kind of people that I want to try to surround myself with. Um, but you know, you don't have to be no like super famous. You find you probably like us, you know, we've done, you know, we're above, I think we're close to 400 episodes now and we've had, you know, Pat and Tom and all the greats on, but sometimes the best episodes are even, you know, the people that maybe you don't know of as well, right? Because they bring a different uh, spin to it. It sounds like that's kind of what you guys do at your show a little bit. You might have Tom on, but you might have somebody on that you've never heard of that's, that's equally as talented. Right. Like, let me give you an example. It's a great segue. Um, this year, I'm offering something I don't think has ever been offered before, at least not in conjunction with a fly fishing event, a large fly fishing event. Uh, this year, I've partnered up with um, uh, Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation's Take Me Fishing program, and we're hosting the first ever Beyond the Cast Women's Symposium. Hmm. And the idea is exactly what it says. It's beyond the cast because you see a lot of introduction to fly fishing or, or fly fishing 101. Well, but not more intermediate to advanced classes. And last year I was challenged by uh, a woman in the fly fishing community. She said, Bo, I think your, your events are great. I feel really welcome here. I feel very included and feel like I'm part of the event, but you know, I think something's missing in the industry. I think we need to be offering more intermediate and advanced classes for women. And nobody's really doing that. 
So I thought about it and I called many women in the fly fishing industry that I know. And they said, yeah, I think it's a really good idea. So this year we're offering what, what's called Beyond the Cast Women's Fly Fishing Symposium, both days, one in Virginia, one in Texas, and from about eight until two on Saturday and nine until 12 on Sunday, you know, we have room for 50 women and the students are 100% women. Uh, and we're going to rotate instructors through. So rather than the students changing classrooms, the, the classroom is going to stay the same and we're going to rotate instructors in and out. And like we have Kim Ranala, who's the founder of Miss Mayfly. She'll be mm. there at both festivals talking about waders, how to pick out waders that fit the right kind of footwear, you know, how to tell when waders fit and when they don't, what's considered safe wading and what's not, some of the myths, you know, and, and uh, she says, you know, I'm, I have women all the time who are afraid that if they put on a belt or something, the air is going to get trapped, their feet are going to go straight up and they're going to drown. Yeah. And that's not unique to women. There are plenty of people who have the same kind of fears. And quite frankly, if you've got one of those old, you know, red ball waders with yep. a slick bottom, I don't know about, you know, your feet going straight up in the air, but you're probably not going to be standing up too long if you don't have some kind of traction. Yeah. Um, the other, uh, one of the other classes that we're having uh, in Virginia and in Texas is uh, we're going to have a class for women on how to interact with wildlife. Um like we have women and not just women, but other people say, well, what do I do if I, what about a bear? Right. Yeah. We're, we're, we have women that say, well, I don't want to go fly fishing in the woods. Cause I'm afraid right. I'm to a bear. Yep. Well, the chance of you running into a bear while you're fly fishing, unless you're in Alaska or Montana, yep. unless you're in Alaska or the wilds of Montana, the chance of you running into a bear is almost equal as running into a unicorn. Yeah. And even Alaska, sometimes it's like, you know, we, we were just up there and, in remote Alaska. We didn't see a single bear. you right. I mean, there's well, sometimes these... they're curious, right? They're yeah. looking at you because they don't know what you are. Right. I've seen that before. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, how do you interact with a bear? What do you do? What do you don't do? What if you see a snake? How can you easily detect whether it's poisonous or non-poisonous? Um, you know, what do you do? how can you easily identify poison ivy and poison oak and, and that kind of stuff. So I've got a couple of game wardens uh, or conservation police officers from Virginia that will be teaching a class in Virginia. And um, mm -hmm. uh, I have a similar class uh, being taught uh, in Texas. So uh, not by the game department, but yeah. uh, you know, because people are interested in that kind of stuff. We're going to have um, a class on uh, how to be a savvy shopper, right? Picking out fly boxes, picking out rods and combo outfits and just general knowledge. Yeah. It's beyond just learning to cast. Right. And we're gonna have, you know, class, uh, technique classes uh, in Virginia. We're going to have um, uh, Charity Rudder, who has been a fly fishing guide, I believe, for more than 20 years. And her and her husband have written a couple of books about fly fishing in the Smoky Mountain National Park. She's going to be giving a class on trout uh, tactics. And, nice. um, you know, so that's what I was kind of thinking. I think it would be cool to, 
you know, maybe if we segue in a little bit more into your area, maybe if we focus on Virginia, um, I was kind of thinking about this because you've written some books, right? And you've written in some magazines on on that part of the area, the Mid-Atlantic. Um, and uh, let's start off with the book. Let's, let's talk about that really quick and maybe that'll get us into that area. What's your, talk about the books that you have out there or the book, whatever focuses on that part of the country. Uh, my first book was uh, or is called Fly Fishing Virginia, No Nonsense Guide to, to Top Waters. Uh, and it's put out by No Nonsense Guidebook Series out of Arizona. And it, interestingly enough, I wanted to fish Mossy Creek and I had a guidebook with me. I was driving up and down the road with the guidebook in my hand and could not figure out how to access the river. And I must have spent 30 minutes driving up and down, following the map, and could not find a place to park, could not find public access. And I got really angry, and I threw the book down on the floorboard, and I said, I'm a dumb fireman, and I can come up with something better than this. And, and that's exactly what I did. Um, and, of course, at that time, I'd driven all over the state because I'd been a manufacturer's rep. So I'd fished all kinds of places. And I thought, you know, I bet there are plenty of guys like me and plenty of gals that just want the basics. How do you get to this river? Where do you park? And what are some of the flies that you should use? And what's the closest fly shop? So I did that. And in Virginia, I did 30 locations, warm water, cold water, salt water, and basically where to park, mm -hmm. who are some of the guides I recommend, and what kind of fly should you use at different times of the year? I tell people, you know, I give you the blueprint and the walls and the windows, but you have to put on the roof and finish the house yourself. I'm not going to give you, you know, I don't give away any secret honey hole spots, um, but I tell people, here's a good place to park. And then you go uh, discover the river on your own. And cause you got to do a little research yourself, right? As you well know, Dave, there's some days you've been to the river where you knew you were going to do well and you didn't do so hot. Yeah. And other days you came there and you're like, well, kind of sketch. Don't know how it's going to be today. And you have an awesome day. Yeah. So, you know, you just got to get out there. And one of the cool things about the book is if you go to, let's say, the Rapidan or whatever, mm -hmm. I give you the next closest place in the book. So if you go to the upper Rapidan and it's blown out, it gives you the next closest place in the book where you can go. So it's nice. all about kind of discovering your own, you know, discovering yourself and then the book sold so well, my publisher called me up and said, Bo, you, this book on fly fishing Virginia is doing really well. You got to do another one. So I did fly fishing the mid-Atlantic. Yeah. And that covers seven states. Again, warm water, cold water, salt water, and 45 locations. Yeah. And, you know, just different places. And I had the advantage of fishing with people, you know, like uh, – when I fished the uh, uh, Spring Creek, I was with Eric Straub. You'd be mm -hmm. hard-pressed to find somebody better than Eric Straub uh, to fish with uh, and learn from. So I went there. You know, I fished the South Holston in Virginia with Matt Riley. Um, you know, I fished all kinds of different places, you know, whether it was on the shore of New Jersey or with Kevin Howell in North Carolina on the Davidson or floated the French broad or, or whatever. And it's just an overview of, of where to go. And it helped me, you know, 
and, and what's interesting is um, I was meticulous about the maps. I drove every single place and I spent, most people are surprised, I spent far more time on the maps than I did on writing the book. Hmm. Because if you don't know how to get there, if the maps aren't accurate, you end up driving up and down the road like I did for 30 minutes, frustrated. So I spent a lot of time on the maps. And I think, to be honest, I don't think I'm a great writer. I think it's the fact that the guidebooks are straightforward. They're full color. They come with maps and they give you fly recommendations. Yeah. That's why the book sells well. Right. That is and nice. then, yeah. And then thank God, um, uh, if, if everything goes right in March of 2023, that's about three or four months from now, my latest book or my next book will come out and it has nothing to do with, with, uh, it has a lot to do with fly fishing, but it's not a guide book. Mm-hmm. It's about veterans. And, um, I had the distinct pleasure of, uh, being introduced to, to Project Healing Waters in the very, very, very beginning. I've probably been associated with the organization for almost 15 years. So I was on the front end and I remember, I can tell you exactly where I was sitting. I was in the bottom of SunTrust Bank in Warrington, Virginia at my Rapidan TU meeting and a guy named John Colburn was there. And John was a retired soldier and lived actually in the soldier's home in Arlington. And he was the first one to tell me about Project Healing Waters. And he explained the concept to our chapter. And I remember thinking, this is one of the best things I have ever thought of. And it'll never work. It'll never work because it just makes too much sense. (laughs) I'm glad I was wrong. (laughs) And um, I have spent years uh, with two programs primarily, uh, the Project Healing Waters program in Fort Belvoir, Virginia, run by Bob Gardner, who's the program lead, and also the program in Quantico, Virginia, at Marine Base Quantico, who was headed up uh, at the time. The program lead was Marty Laxberg, and it's recently, in the last year, transferred to uh, Jim Benzinger, who's now the program lead there. Mm-hmm. And this book uh, chronicles the story of about 35 veterans and volunteers from the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marine Corps, and how these people got involved in fly fishing and their journey. Uh, Some of them were flyingers before they went into the military and then found Project Healing Waters, but the overwhelming majority were people that were injured. And then when they got back to the States, had fly fishing help them in their recovery. And one of course the, the biggest misconception and uh, about Project Healing Waters is people are like, oh, it, it's about taking guys and gals fly fishing. No, hmm. no, it's not. Fly fishing is nothing but a catalyst. Project Healing Waters is an organization about relationships, and fly fishing is just icing on the cake. And um, I have been honored, and I mean that completely to the fullest extent of the word, meeting these men and women, not all of the other misconception is that everybody in Project Healing Waters, you know, were injured on the battlefield. And that's not true. Project Healing Waters will take any veteran, uh, whether you served in Vietnam or you served in Afghanistan last week, 
if there are plenty of people who are involved in the program that were involved in motorcycle accidents or came down with some kind of illness that affected their ability to walk and Project Healing Waters came alongside them and, and helped them connect with other people. And Project Healing Waters is the epitome of sharing with people what you know yeah. and, and introducing them to fly fishing. And uh, it's a magnificent organization. The name of the book is going to be um, Healing Waters, Veteran Stories of Recovery in Their Own Words. And um, it is, uh, <clears throat> it's not an easy read. You're not going to pick this up with a cup of coffee and start at page one and, and read through 30 pages or 40. No. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. You, no. you might, but you'd be a different kind of animal than, than I am because right. uh, this yeah, is, I hear this is pretty, uh, it's pretty tough stuff. And um, I've spent the better part of uh, almost when, by the time I will have finished almost nine years off and on uh, because I just couldn't sit down and write it. And the first two years, I don't know what I was doing. I honestly, you know, I interviewed some people and wrote and my wife, who's the secret weapon to my success, she edits everything I write. I tell everybody, I tell people the same thing, whether I'm at a, a club or uh, at a show out of town somewhere or, or signing books at a fly shop. Oh, you know, I read your article on this or that, or I really like this. And I'm like, look, dude, if you saw my article in the original crayon before my wife edited it, you wouldn't be nearly as impressed. Yeah, you got a good you got a good person. That's that's cool. The uh, yeah, I, I hear you what you're saying. I, I'm reading a book um, similarly. Well, it's probably a lot different, but um, you know, the body keeps the score, and it's about PTSD, right? People with PTSD, right. and there's a lot of examples in there about you know what that's like obviously soldiers things like things like that we had joe jackson on who you might know sergeant bass fisher and he was on the podcast he explained i mean he just had a heart attack and he's a young guy right i remember re right. reading about that yeah yeah so he talked about his story we didn't even dig deep into it but i know you know project healing waters basically saved him right i mean so it's a powerful thing and you know, I appreciate you doing that because it's not, I know, an easy thing to do. And that book sounds like, I mean, for you, was this the sort of thing where you interviewed a lot of people as well and then told those stories? Yes. Yeah, so, so the way it worked. So first I kind of just casually interviewed guys and, and gals and ask them some questions. And this is how it relates back to my wife. And I, I wrote up what I wrote and I'd been working off and on for like two years on it. And I gave it to my wife to read. And I said, hey, read, read, these, read this manuscript, read what I've written about these guys, and, and, and let me know what you think. Well, four or five days went by, and she didn't say anything. So finally, I asked her, I said, hey, what did you, you, know, what did you think about that stuff? And she said, well, you know, it, it, it's pretty good, which means it's horrible. Yeah. And I said, well, well what's wrong? And she said, honey, I'm reading this. And I know you, and I know how you write, and I know how you relate to people. And you're writing about these guys, and you need to be with them. So my advice to you is quit writing. Don't write another word. Just go to meetings. Go to festival. I mean, go to programs, right? Go to Quantico. Go to Fort Belvoir, and just be. And that's exactly what I did. 
Uh, first, though, I, I had to get permission. I went to uh, um, uh, Marty Laxberg and uh, Bob Gartner. We had dinner in, in West Springfield. And I sat down with them. I pitched them the idea on the book. And Marty and Bob looked at me and said, great, no problem. We're glad to have you, you know, kind of be in the program. I was kind of in it, but not in it because I'm not a veteran. And I really wasn't there to volunteer, although, you know, I did volunteer some. I went to events. I helped out, but I, I wasn't like a classic casting instructor or and I could barely tie my shoes. So I sure wasn't going to be teaching any five time classes. And they said, you're welcome to be here as much as you want. We only have one rule that you need to remember at all times. And I said, okay. And they said, the veteran comes first. As long as you understand that our programs, the veterans come first, we're going to be okay. You just need to know they come first. Well, I never forgot that. And um, in this book, um, I interviewed, like I said, about, about 40 people, actually, and um, in the end, some people decided that it was just too painful to share their stories mm -hmm. and they couldn't do it. And, and I respect that because this is, this is gut wrenching. You cannot get any more authentic than I got, I think with these men and women and um, yeah, they got to read it, right? Nobody's going to be surprised by what they see in the book. If, if Keith Gilbert, who was uh, with the 82nd Airborne and now lives in Georgia, Keith Gilbert will not be surprised what he reads about himself. Um, you know, Jessica Callahan, who lives in Tennessee, she's not going to be surprised by what she reads. Mm. You know, neither will any of these veterans, whether it's Clem Danish, Clem Danish, who was also a paratrooper, um, you know, they're not going to be shocked because they have to read it all first because they're making some extremely intense and emotional, you know, episodes that they went through public. Yeah. So if they're going to be that authentic and that honest, then they need to have the right to edit it. And quite frankly, I had people that said, well, this part here, Bo, where it talks about me wanting to kill myself every day for a month straight, Dude, my mom is not going to understand that. We have to take that part out. Okay. Mm. Uh, this part where, you know, I was sexually assaulted, all of that's coming out. Yeah. So they would say something, but I'd interview them. And, and this took a long time. Yeah. Because what I found out was I'd be interviewing them and I'd be old school, right? I'm 57. So I'm writing everything out by hand or whatever. And, and that became distracting. So what I started doing was using my cell phone to get an audio recording. Mm -hmm. So I would record hours and hours of interviews. Then I'd send it to a transcriptionist who was the only person who got to see the raw information and they were sworn to secrecy. They would then transcribe the interview, then I would have to compile the narrative based on the transcript and write it, then submit it to the warrior and let them read it. 
and make a correction. Maybe I had the the forward operating base wrong, or I mm-hmm. misspelled, you know, the the base they were at, or or I had the wrong name for the firefight, or or whatever, right? Because I've dealt with everything from, you know, Jerry Myron, who was a Vietnam era dog handler, to people who, you know, fought in Desert Storm or saw what happened at the World Trade Towers and then enlisted in the military. So there was a lot of information, a lot of base names, conflict names, and the fog of war is a real thing. Sometimes people would misremember something. So I had to try to go back and and be accurate. So as as gut-wrenching as this is, all of these veterans had to approve it first. So um, I'm not making anything known that they're not okay with. That doesn't mean they're happy about it because I know there will be things that come out in this book that wives and husbands don't know about their spouses and they're yeah. not going to until they read about it. But, yeah. you know, the veterans, they all had to approve this yeah. ahead of time. And, um, I'm I'm not embarrassed to say this, but there was more than one time where I'd be writing and I'd break down into tears. Yeah, I imagine. Writing about what they went through. Right. And uh, most Americans, most Americans have no concept, zero concept yeah. of what our military goes through to keep us safe. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, I mean, that must have been uh, an challenging and tough. I mean, I just think of this book that I'm reading again, it's the same. I mean, they're talking about some of these extreme things about, you know, basically killing people. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's war, right? That's, that's a thing that no people, you know, it's hard to think about, but um, I mean, what was that, you know, for you, were there these stories you mentioned? I mean, and I, I think about myself too, because when I had Joe Jackson, I knew a story that he had shared um, publicly already about how, you know, he, went to jail, was going to prison, I think, or something like that, because he, you know, uh, PTSD hit, right? And he took somebody down and it was like a bad situation. Uh, But I didn't really dig back into it, right? Because I felt kind of like, oh man, I don't want to have him have to tell that story again. For you, did you find yourself in that situation where you're talking to these people? Uh, Sometimes, so here's the way sometimes it would happen, right? I'd be recording. And we would be at a particular area that was intense. And I can tell that the veteran is kind of not reliving it, but they're they're emotionally fragile. And they're telling me things that is really intense. And numerous times I would have the veteran say, cut off your recorder. And I would cut it off. And then they would relay to me a story so intense that they didn't want anybody to know about it, but they were willing to share it with me. And then I'd cut the recording back on and then we, we pick up. Um, I believe I had uh, a huge advantage, uh, two huge advantages that somebody else would not have had. Number one, I was a flyinger or I tried to be a flyinger. So I can relate to them about what it was like to be out on the stream and, and try to forget what you deal with or what you'd seen because I spent 30 years in the fire department and because I had been in the fire department and had seen some pretty horrible things myself, things that I still can't unsee, 
I think I had some credibility with them that maybe they would not have given the same kind of information. Like if I just said, oh, I'm a, I'm a newspaper reporter or I'm a, you know, I work for the New York times or whatever. Right. Or I'm a, I'm a podcaster. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't, you know, I think podcasters are still held in pretty high regard. I yeah. think most of the media is lower than whale manure. Right. I have very little regard, but I'm, I'm serious. I have very little regard for the media yeah. because I'm old enough to remember when they wanted to report the news. Now they want to make it. I know. Now they want to drive the narrative yep. rather than report on it. And I'm not interested in doing that. I'm going to share whatever, like my book is completely apolitical. I'm not going to read. Now people made statements, but I took those statements out. Yeah. Because it didn't have any bearing on what, the overall concept of Project Healing Waters is about helping veterans and helping veterans' families. It's got zero to do with politics. So I just feel like, you know, I, I remember Ed, um, Ed Nicholson, who, when he found out I was going to write the book and encouraged me, he said, hey, man, I want you to go to, uh, to the, I think we went to the Middle Fork of the Salmon River in Idaho. He said, I want you to, to come out here and experience this. And um, I said, Ed, you know, I, I really I can't afford to fly out to Idaho and stay in a hotel and pay for that. I just I don't I got a wife and two kids and I'll never forget what he said. I didn't ask you if you could afford it. I asked if you wanted to go. Huh. And I thought. I almost broke down into tears. Yeah. So I went because, and Ed wasn't stupid. Ed's a very, very smart guy. He likes playing the old oh, Humpty Dumpty. Ed Nicholson is extremely bright. You don't get to be a Navy captain because you're a nice guy or you got close on the promotional list. Right. So Ed said, I want you to come out here because I want you to experience it. Because when you get out here on the water and you get away from everything and you get with these, these guys and gals, you're going to get to see the magic. And what he yeah. meant was see the transformation. So I went out there and my roommate was a guy named Brian Mancini, combat medic, um, who had been in the army and he was also a medic. So we ended up being in the same hotel room the night before we went out. So Brian and I hit it off like two peas in a pod. He's telling me about stuff. I'm well, you know, one time I had this kind of call. So we're sharing all these experiences, but the difference is Brian was working on people. He knew I didn't know mm. anything. Right. right. I mean, I've a couple of times in my life, I've ended up helping people that I knew that were in life-threatening situations, and I and I knew them on a personal level, but that's very rare. It's not very rare when you're in the military and you're working on people in your unit that are under fire. Yeah, wow. So Brian is telling me some rather intense stories and really shook me. And uh, we went on and had a great time, had a great trip. I met many other people, some of whom were, went on to be in the book. 
And we're standing at the edge of the river. I'll never forget this. We're about to launch and everybody's introducing themselves. Hi, my name's Bill. You know, I served in the Navy for 18 years, blah, blah, blah. And I, and this, oh, I was in the National Guard and, and uh, you know, one guy piped up. Well, I'm the only person here that can read and write. I was actually in the Air Force for 10 years, you know, so that, that kind of joking around. And uh, I, at the time, had a military haircut, had a buzz haircut. Mm-hmm. And they finally got around to me and I was really uncomfortable. Because I realized, well, I look like these guys, but I'm not like these guys. And I'm kind of looking at the ground and kicking the rocks. And I'm like, well, you know, my name's Bill Beasley. And I work for Fairfax County Fire Department and blah, blah, blah. I'll never forget. <clears throat> this guy standing beside me. And he put his arm around me. And he said, it's okay. You're just like us. Except you serve at home. Yep. And, man, wow. it just choked me up. And I remember saying, I said, no, I'm not like you. Mm. After 24 hours, I get to go home and nobody's trying to kill me at work, at least not on purpose. Right. Wow. And the fact that I worked for the fire department carried so much weight with these men and women that they allowed themselves to be transparent. And there was a lot of crying on Mm. both ends. Right. Yeah. Because they would say something. They go, well, you know, I don't know if you know what it's like, but I was at this, you know, we had took incoming fire and I could smell the burning. I could smell the burning bodies. And and I don't know if you know what that's like. No. Yeah. I know what that's like. Yeah. Right. So certain amount I I could relate in some ways and a very small uh, under no circumstances want to be put in the category of somebody that knows what it's like to be on the battlefield. I have right. no concept. Yep. Now I know plenty of guys who have taken fire and returned fire. I know plenty of guys who put bad guys in the ground. Yep. My job in the fire department was not like that. No. Right. No. So, um, yeah. sadly enough though, this book, um, when it comes out in a couple of months, Mm-hmm is dedicated to Brian Mancini Mm. is the soldier that I roomed with who eventually killed himself. And and Brian lost his life as a result, direct result of his service and the uh, post-traumatic stress disorder that, that he suffered from. So this book is dedicated to Brian and the men and women like him who won't come home they're never going to come home. They're sleeping in Arlington National Cemetery or parts unknown. So this book is dedicated to the men and women like Brian Mancini and their families because the families serve too. When that man or woman goes overseas for a year and doesn't come back, their families are missing them all year long. Yep. And when you're in the army, they don't say, hey, it's Christmas. You get to go home. No. Or, hey, hey it's your, your wife's about to have a baby. Well, um, you're at a foreign operating base. You're not going home. Yeah. Or you're in PTSD or it's after you're back from war and the person has PTSD and, and the family's dealing with it. Right. Or I, I got one better than that. Well, or I shouldn't say better than that. Yeah. How about this? How about you were a police officer and then you went into combat 
and you saw so much bad stuff that when you came back, you can't carry a gun anymore. Yeah. Not because you're afraid to carry a gun. You're not. And you're not afraid to do your job. You're afraid that you're going to be put in a shoot, don't shoot situation. And you're going to shoot. Mm. Perhaps yeah. at a time when you yep. should. So there are people, men and women, I know both, who've lost their careers. Exactly. Because after their service, they could not go back to doing what they were doing. Plus, in, in our society now, you know, yep. we're so eager to demonize the police over anything. I, I know. I would be a police officer. You don't have enough money in the world for me to be a police officer or to have one of my children be police officers yep. because they're being scapegoated now for everything. Yep. And I tell you, I worked with plenty of good uh, law enforcement officers who now are just under the microscope. Yep. For the, for the slightest things. And, and I have uh, nothing but respect for our men and women in blue yeah. who service. And don't get me wrong. I don't think police are infallible. I think no. if they make a mistake and they break the like law, everybody. Yeah. Right, they're just like everybody else. And they yeah. need to, to, to own up to that. But this yeah. idea that the average police officer is just a horrible person right. waiting for a chance to, to slap somebody around and take him to jail. Yeah. Um, no, that's, that's just not. I think that's the extreme. That's the extreme. And I will say back to your, what you just talked about there. I mean, that just brings a tear, you know, to your eye. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I think probably everybody listening here is feeling that because, you know, like you, you, I mean, I go back to nine 11, you know, and we could talk war, which is the extreme level. But again, you were one of those people, right. Or people like you were on the ground at nine 11, people died, people lost their lives. And, and that was firefighters, right? I mean, that's what you saw. That was people like yourself that were out there giving their lives and probably still now dealing with the the effects of that, right? So I, you know, I give it up to you and, uh, and for writing this book too, because I mean, you just talked about one story there, but I mean, I'd imagine every story brought, you know, could bring a tear to your eye. So I appreciate you for sharing that. Oh, you're more than welcome. Well, interestingly enough, two things. Number one, I was actually on leave the day 9-11 happened. Oh, wow. So I should have been on duty, but I wasn't. Uh, my shift was on duty. I saw my co-workers on television taking people into the hospital. Jeez. Um, I didn't lose anybody that, that I knew, but I know plenty of people. My ex-partner uh, actually found the black box at the Pentagon. Oh. So... I know plenty of men and women who've been there, done that, saw it, pulled the bodies out. Um, and of course, 343 New York City firefighters lost their lives at 9-11. And I don't think people understand how many more firefighters and police officers killed themselves afterwards because they just couldn't deal with what they saw or... Um, and I'm not saying anything that that's that's out of school, you know, recovering alcoholics, yeah, who were recovering until they saw that and left, got off work the next day and went to a bar, yeah, because they just couldn't deal with, uh, deal with the loss, and um, you know, it wasn't just the firefighters; it was guys that died in the port you know, Port Authority police officers, too, that died at 9-11. And, and um, you know, I, I often wondered, I thought, you know, God, why wasn't I at work? For the longest time, I felt I really did. How come I wasn't at work that day? Right. And then I have to be honest, 
I think the good Lord allowed me not to be at work that day because I think if I had been at work that day, I would have probably, I don't know that I would have recovered. Yeah. And I, I don't say that, you know, I don't say that lightly. I have my own issues with post-traumatic stress disorder. And there were times where, you know, I mentioned in the book where one particularly traumatic call where uh, it was probably the most stressful call I've ever run in the fire department, which involved a life-threatening injury with a fellow coworker where I was so traumatized myself and coworkers were relieved on the spot and sent home. Uh, I ended up receiving psychiatric care afterwards because I kept having nightmares and was I was reliving incidents that I had been on years before that were kind of tucked in the back of my mind and yeah. uh, yeah. would 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 come out of Pandora's box, so to speak. But yeah. so but I'm I'm at peace with that now. Yeah. And, and oddly enough, I was coming back from having lunch. Uh, with somebody in the fly fishing community who was very well known. I'm not going to say their name because I don't act like I'm dropping a name, but yep. I was having lunch with them. I came back and I was with a Marine and I'm even going to say his name, Alex Kalana, fantastic mm-hmm. prior uh, service gunnery sergeant. And he ended up not being deployed. And, and he said to me, you know, Bo, I was around at 9-11, but I wasn't in, I wasn't at the top of my game and I ended up not going in and serving combat. And I felt really guilty about that. And then I started telling him, well, you know, I felt guilty that I I wasn't at the fire station that day. And, but Alex said something to me that was profound. He said, the reason I didn't go back in was because I couldn't keep my men safe. Hmm. I couldn't perform at the level that I should have. Yep. And he said, I'm just telling you, so you're not ashamed of me. I said, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm proud of you. And then I told him about my experience. And it's that's what it's like about Project Healing Waters. I, so the other thing I was going to say is people know, will read about the book and go, oh, man, that was honorable and that was heroic and blah, blah, blah. Well, you're going to get to read about Superman, but I know Clark Kent. Yeah. You're going to get to read about Batman, but I know Adam West, right? Yeah. I know the people behind the heroic actions. Not right. Us. And none of these people. Um, so two other things about the book. Number one, you could not volunteer to be in it. Mm. I had to come get you. You could not come to me. Yeah. And say, I want to be in your book. It didn't work that way. Hmm. And I had to beg these people to be involved. Oh, but wow. I mean, literally, because they don't want to be written about. They don't yeah. want, they would rather be slapped in the face than be heralded. They don't want to be heralded. Yeah. They're actually allowing me to write about them to help reach other people. It's not about them. Yeah. It's that they know there are other servicemen and women who are hurting that may be able to read about what they went through and think, hey, that's just like me. Or maybe this organization, you know, can help me or maybe gotcha. some guy, you know, reads it who wasn't even in the military. Right. He, he just sees the book at, at some bookstore and he reads it and then realizes, oh, my gosh, 
This is why my brother is the way he is. This is why my sister. Exactly. Or why my dad can't like in the fire department. And I mentioned this in the book, my, my first fire officer was one of the bravest people I ever met. Uh, His name is Art Varnu. He's still very much alive. I would follow Art Varnu in the hell. He was that kind of a leader, Hmm. but he served in Vietnam and at the fire station. We, you know, sometimes we'd on our downtime at night, we'd watch a war movie or something. Yep. Not him. Oh, he couldn't stand it. He would come in and go out. That's it. Right. And he never really talked about his service, but that, that level of leadership that I saw Art Varnu command, not because he wanted you to salute him, because he was such a good leader, you wanted to follow him. And that's why these programs work, because program leads like uh, Bob Gardner and like Marty Laxberg and like some of these other men and women that aren't as well known, they're such great leaders. They are so sacrificial. That's what Project Healing Waters is about. Yeah. Being sacrificial. So when Bob and Marty said, as long as you understand the veterans come first, we're going to get along just fine. Gotcha. Wow. And they honored me by allowing me to shadow them for several years. And I'm, I'm so excited um, for this book to come out. That's and amazing. All I hope to do is to honor the men and women that I've written about because they deserve it. Today's episode is sponsored by Stonefly Nets, putting quality before quantity with their handcrafted custom wood landing nets. Charleston, South Carolina native Ethan Eigelhart was bitten by the fly fishing bug in 2014 and shortly thereafter started Stonefly Nets. He now lives in the trout-rich waters of the Ozarks and handcrafts some of the sweetest wooden landing nets you'll see. I've been using these Stonefly Nets for quite a while now and I'm excited to dig into another year. Ethan builds these nets custom, and you can select from four sizes and many different wood options. For Ethan, fly fishing is a memory created from a morning on a beautiful stretch of water casting a three-weight bamboo rod that his grandmother gave to his father, and then he passed to Ethan. Ethan is helping us create the same types of lasting memories every time we're on the water with these classic custom wood nets. You can head over right now to wetflyswing.com slash stonefly to check out your custom net right now. That's wetflyswing.com slash stonefly, S-T-O-N-E-F-L-Y. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to stonefly. Okay, back to the show. This is one of the reasons, I, again, I talk about this sometimes when I get episodes like this that are powerful is that the podcasting, this is why I love it, you know, because I wasn't even thinking about going down this road and I didn't even know about, it, to be honest with you, I didn't know about that book. And, um, and it's probably one of the most powerful, you know, uh, episodes maybe we, we've ever had, right? Because you wrote this book for, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, who, who did you write this book for? I mean, when you, when it comes down to it, who, because I think about some examples of what I would say, but what, what is your answer to that? Um, the main reason I wrote it was I want Americans to understand what it cost. Yeah. They need to understand what their freedom cost because freedom is not free. 
There's only one currency for freedom. It's blood. Mm. That's it. That's the only currency for freedom. And the only reason we have any freedom, the only reason that we're not speaking German or Japanese or Farsi is because of the men and women sleeping in Arlington National Cemetery. Yeah. Because somebody is standing guard. That's that's why. Hmm. And I wanted um, I wanted to honor these men and women who I just I feel lucky just to be around, right? Just just to just to know who these people are. And when you read what they've gone through and how humble they are, just I mean, what these people did and what they went through and how they're willing to share their pain, not because they want to be recognized, but because they want to help their other Marines and their other soldiers or sailors or airmen. They they don't want their brothers and sisters to be left. And I remember this book was not even my idea. Alan Folger, who was a Vietnam veteran, called me one day uh, at the fire station. And he said, oh, actually, I was at home first. He said, Bo, I got your next book. And he illustrated. He did all the illustrations for my fly fishing in the mid-Atlantic. He calls me and said, hey, man, I got your next book. And I said, Alan, I am not interested in writing another book. No, 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 I, I, not a guidebook. Hmm. You need to write a book about Project Healing Waters. You'd be perfect for it. I said, Alan, I'm not doing that. There's no way I'm going to do that. I don't know anything about <laughs> it. This is like writing a guide, you know, a kindergartner could practically do a guidebook, right? You draw a little map <laughs> and you yeah. tell people where the little stick figures go and you rec- and that's it, right? Yeah. I said, you, you're talking about real people and real events. I said, I, I can't do that. Well, Alan Folger hounded me and ha- he called me and called me and called me and called <laughs> me over. And finally, one day I was at work and he said, have you started yet? <laughs> and I said, Alan, I'm not going to do it. And there's this long pause. And he said, Bo, you got to do it. Wow. Because sooner or later, we're going to quit fighting in Afghanistan and we're going to quit fighting in Iraq. And you know what's going to happen? These men and women are going to be forgotten about, just like we were forgotten about in Vietnam. And you can't let that happen. And that was really powerful mm. to me. Um, so wow. Alan is the reason the book got started and all the other people who helped me. And I want to give a shout out to my friend, uh, <clears throat> Jim Williams, who lives, uh, I believe, in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and was a, a volunteer for Project Healing Waters. He was with me on that trip with Brian Mancini. And Jim would call me and say, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? How's it going? And he would send me an email saying, are you done yet? Are you done yet? And I'm like, Jim, I just can't do this. It's too hard. This is gut-wrenching. I can't, I'm not qualified to do this. I'm just some washed up fireman that used to write about fly fishing. And this is, this is real stuff. This is real people's lives here. And he kept going, nope, you can't quit. You can't quit. And by the grace of God, and I do mean that literally, uh, by the grace of God, and the encouragement of people like uh, Jim Williams hmm. and my family and the veterans and my publisher, Howard Fisher, mm-hmm. you know, this baby should 
coming in for a landing in a couple of months. Wow. And I, people go out and buy the book and support Project Healing Waters. Yep. And look at those veterans who may not be able to tell you how bad they hurt. They yeah. don't need you to come up and tell them something trite, like, I know how you're feeling. Right. Because I would never say that no. because I don't know how they're feeling. No. But what you can say is, I love you. Right. And say is, hey man, you want to go fly fishing? Yeah. You know, what you can do is you say, well, Bo, I, you know, you know, what what can I do? Well, uh, not to be put too fine a point on it, but you can write a check. You can write a check yep. to Project Healing Waters, or you can volunteer, or and we have all kinds of people that do stuff. You know, they they're people that donate food, right? If if there's a Project Healing Waters event somewhere, they'll have a caterer show up and then cater cater the food, and you'll never hear about it. Most people in Project Healing Waters, whether it's veterans or staff, they do not want to be recognized. They want to help other veterans. And when you have a veteran, and I know of cases, myself personally, where because of Project Healing Waters, the veteran is out now in the community where before they were at home by themselves and did not leave their house unless they went to a doctor's appointment for a decade. Wow. Now you think about that. Yep. How hurt do you have to be to come home from the military and then not leave your house for 10 years? Jeez. Right. And I, yep. and I talked to veterans. I mean, there, there, there were stories that, that I couldn't put in the book or for whatever reason didn't make it. I remember interviewing this one veteran and I asked him, I said, you know, how do you know when you're going to have a bad day or tell me what a bad day is for you? And some of it you don't want to hear, right? But, I, you know, when you have a veteran that says, uh, Bo, I, I know it's going to be rough when I'm up at night patrolling my house with a firearm. Jeez. And this person was in Vietnam. Yeah. And they're still struggling. So, uh, now, uh, one last misconception they're up. You know, uh, a lot of people, when they go into the military, and I have personally seen this, going into the military makes them, right? They become confident. They become organized. They become disciplined. That's why so many employers want to hire former military people. Right. Because they're all about getting the job done. Yeah. So, these men and women are not victims, they're victors, not victims. And uh, it's really encouraging and quite humbling because I have seen men and women wade out into the water in waters that I would be afraid to go into or cast better with their left arm, which is not their dominant arm because their right arm is missing, and cast better with their non-dominant arm than I can on purpose Yeah, with my dominant arm. Because they've learned. So this book is about uh, encouragement and recognize these men and women who have gone through the other side and they've been through the fire. They've come out the other end and they're standing there saying, come on, brother, you're not alone. Yeah. So it's just as much for, you know, all those people, right? I mean, that's a tribute 
to them, but also I'm sure people that are family members, people, like you said, that pick it up off the shelf and don't have any, and they, they read a couple stories and like, wow, they make a connection, maybe understand like me, you know, I have family that have PTSD, right? And I don't, I'm learning about it. That's why I'm reading this book. And I'm like, wow, hearing stories of people from wars, PTSD can be wars. It can be from a lot of things, right? I'm sure lots of people in in your field have PTSD. And I think for me, understanding a little more about what it is and how to maybe help it, right? I think your book probably will help people like that, right? The, the average person. Well, I hope so. It's written for the average person. It's not, you know, it's not a medical textbook. I mean, yeah. there'll be some medical jargon in there, but it's just about, you know, the average soldier, sailor, airman, marine, dare I say average, um, because most of these men and women in armed services have just have committed so much of their life because they believe in service. And this is my way, you know, to honor them and to honor their families because the world is a lesser place because Brad Mancini isn't in it anymore. Yeah. And um, a lot of people that don't adjust that can't come back. And what they need to know is they can have a new normal. They can have a new normal and they're not alone. They're not hopeless. And they can be part of a team because I was fortunate when I left the fire department, um, I had been in 30 years. And when I retired, I was the captain of my shift and the senior paramedic. And the last day at work, my wife and kids came and got me an alarm came in and that fire truck went out without me on it. And I cried, but I went out under my own terms. There are plenty of people that were on the battlefield. And when they woke up, they were in a hospital Yep. and their career was over. Yep. Right. They wanted to do 30 years. They wanted to, climb the rank structure. And as I heard one, one guy say, all I ever wanted to do was lead other Marines. I can't do that anymore. Right. And, and I'll learn um, from, from people that are just phenomenal leaders, despite what's going on in their lives. I think of uh, uh, John Mazingo, who's a combat injured Marine. I think of people like Duke Davis, combat injured sniper, um, I think of, uh, you know, Tamar Franklin, who was a, a volunteer or had been a volunteer up in New Jersey. I mean, these are just wonderful human beings, men and women who have given so much of themselves and they're pretty much unsung and people don't know about it. So the objective of this book was to honor these men and women and to honor the volunteers like Jim Williams um, that that are standing there encouraging people on the sidelines saying you can do it and they can do it. I have seen them. I have seen myself. People go from you thinking, man, that guy or that guy's in really bad shape. You can tell. And then see him a year later and not believe you looking at the same person. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just, you just wouldn't believe because it's not the same person. No but they can't do it by themselves. No. They need support. Yeah. 
And I wanted to encourage these veterans, encourage the volunteers, and to honor the husbands and the wives and the sons and the daughters and the caregivers who are there day in and day out. And um, I would just encourage people uh, to support organizations like Project Healing Waters and other organizations uh, out there that, that are giving our men and women in uniform a hand when they really need it. So hopefully the yeah. book will be out. Uh, the book will be out in uh, March or April of 2023, and you'll be mm -hmm. able to get it from uh, your local fly shop. I would encourage you to buy it from your local fly shop. Yeah. And of course you can buy it from your local bookstore or order it online. Uh, but I would, I would tell you to, you know, to support your local fly shop and maybe even buy them from your local programs. I don't know if the, I'm sure Project Healing Waters are probably everywhere. Out, you know, out of headquarters or something. And yeah, we'll connect with that, Bo. This is, uh, yeah, this has been a pretty uh, powerful, you know, obviously episode, but also inspiring. You know, you, you, I think you've inspired me, and I think probably a lot of people listening to actually, you know, do something like you said. You know, give back, talk to Project Healing Waters, find your local chapter, you know, help whatever you can do. You know, I think it's a you know, I appreciate you, uh, you know, taking us here today because this is not where I thought we were going here, but I'm glad we kind of went here and it, it gives me a lot of ideas of how we can help as well. So, so yeah, I think we've got a lot of stuff that I was thinking about checking in on and we're probably, we're not going to get to now, but, um, I think maybe we'll have to get you back on maybe later uh, next year and circle back around with you that, if that sounds okay. Yeah, that's fine, Dave. I'll be glad, uh, glad to come back on. Maybe, maybe next time we can talk about, uh, uh, some river access and yeah. usage. That's the other thing I write That's about. Right. Is, uh, uh, I'm known for my research on river bottom ownership. And That's right. Kind That's of a, right. Kind of weird kind of angle, but um, I like to try to help anglers get on the water and figure out where they can legally fish yep. and where they should stay away from and, and uh, you know, respect private property rights. So maybe That's we can do one. that in an upcoming episode. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. I really appreciate it. And, and if people want um, any more information about me, they can go to my website, www.beaubeasley.com. And the same thing, uh, they can check us out at the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival. Mm -hmm flyfishingfestival.org or our uh, sister program, the Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival in Mesquite, Texas. And uh, they can go to www.txflyfishingfestival.org. I encourage people to come out. It's a lot of fun. And we can introduce you to the, uh, to the greatest sport the good Lord ever helped create, fly fishing. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right, Bo, thanks for all your time today, and, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Dave. So there we go. Bo Beasley bringing us uh, into his world and a, a pretty emotional one today. Um, you can hear the passion and, uh, and everything that he talked about uh, on this episode. Pretty powerful stuff. Wetflyswing.com slash 400. 400. We made it. We made it to the big 400. I want to say thank you for listening right now this show has always been uh focused and created for you uh and i always try to do my best to create content um that you find interesting helpful um uh, emotional you know kind of uh, all the above so i hope uh, this one fits the bill and i hope you get a chance to uh check in and support 
Veterans Project Healing Waters, if you haven't already, uh, give them a shout out this week. I'm going to give one more shout out to all the men and women around the country, uh, all the veterans, everybody who's uh, given their lives, um, you know, who have, uh, who are dealing with PTSD and, uh, and lots of things like that. I just want to, again, give one more shout out. Uh, this is our way of doing it on the podcast. And I also want to say I recently finished a book um, about my great uncle. Um, I believe this is my my grandma's brother, uh, Jack, Jack Ingram, who um, had a pretty amazing life in the Navy. And, and I read about uh, basically his life and uh, his son wrote this book and it was really a great book. It talked about his rise in the Navy um, and pretty much up to, you know, the highest levels. And so anyways, this is my way of saying uh, thanks to Jim Ingram, who wrote the book and, and Jack. And, uh, and again, it's my, my little connection. I've never served. So uh, I guess this is my way of kind of uh, giving a shout out to all those great people out there. All right. Your call to action today is to reach out to Project Healing Waters or one of the other uh, more local uh, vet groups that are supporting uh, vets around the country. Um, or if you if you find a veteran or see somebody out there, just uh, give them a hand, shake shake their hand, um, say thank you um, for your service. And I'm going to leave you with the words the words from my great uncle. That's my good turn for the day. That's uh, Jack Ingram. Um, that's what he used to say as he would go around. He would try to do a a good deed each day, and uh, and that's that's my good deed for the day. Big shout out, and uh, I want to again remind you this episode is dedicated to Brian Mancini, and I want to say thank you uh, if you know Brian Mancini or you're connected in any way. Um, that's what this is here for, Bo. Appreciate you for uh, helping to put this together, and uh, and I look forward to definitely keeping in touch with you. And uh, we're going to read that book when it comes out, and, and I'm going to leave it there. All right. It's late. It's late again. Uh, so I hope you are having a good evening, a good morning, or a good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.